The Astrea Trilogy, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. Book Three, The Wanderer's Curse. Chapter Nine, in which Adramin and Walt join forces. Days passed, in which Mufrid drove his men so hard that even when they were given leave to visit the inn, they were so exhausted they soon returned to sleep. They levered the stumps of broken mast out of the ship, repaired the damage done when spars had crashed to the deck, and salvaged what they could of the standing and running rigging and the various blocks, sheaves, fittings, and belays. They never knew when Mufred would appear, watch, and direct. Though he rarely took exception to what they were doing and how they did it, none of them wanted to incur the sudden, vicious anger of which they all knew he was capable. On the morning of the sixth day, Cygnus sailed through the gap between the headlands into the Charton Harbour. Nolan rapped on Mufrid's door with the news, sending him to the deck, his breakfast ignored. He leaned on the stern rail of Elusive and watched Cygnus carefully, gnawing the nail on his right thumb. The ship entered the bay with a sea breeze carrying her landward under jib and mainsail. She wore the two sails goose-winged, jib set to starboard and main to port, both of them spilling wind to keep the ship from moving too quickly. Two longboats, one ahead and one astern, each with three pairs of oars, stood ready to pull, check, or turn as needed. Tow-ropes dipped into the sea from them and then rose to Cygnus. A sailor swung the lead and called the soundings in a voice that the wind carried back to Cygnus' quarter-deck, but which Mufrid could not hear. He debated with himself. A part of him wanted to criticize the operation for lack of confident ship-handling. Another wryly acknowledged that the cautious approach was preferable to his own headlong disaster. As he watched Cygnus coming closer, he saw that she was planning to come alongside Elusive, where there was sure to be enough depth of water. Mufrid beckoned Hamal to his side, and quietly ordered him to keep the men below. Then he went to his cabin, a voice in his head assuring him that this was the moment to take command. Adramin sailed Cygnus into Charton, trying to project a confidence he did not feel. He strode back and forth on the quarter-deck, maintaining his calm with the regular action, resisting his usual habit of instructing the men to do what they were perfectly capable of doing without his help. Because he had little experience of bringing a ship into a functioning port, he had been planning the approach to Charton all the way back from the little settlement of boat-builders and outfitters, where Cygnus had lain at anchor and been serviced by boats from shore. When he had sea-room, he could manoeuvre the ship at sea in all kinds of weather, but entering Charton Harbour meant that he had to dock his ship alongside Elusive, without putting her onto reefs and rocks whose location he could only guess. He had sailed his longboat into the harbour only months before, when his mission had been to secure Astrea's clasp, but helming a light, shallow-draft vessel did not compare to docking a deep. But helming a light, shallow, but helming a light, shallow-draft vessel did not compare to docking a deep-keel, ocean-going ship. The prospect was daunting, particularly since he knew that Mufred had failed at the same task. However, 
He'd been over and over his plan so often in his mind, and had spoken with Mirac and Bettel in such detail, that now the approach was in process he had little to do but worry. In the waist of the ship sailors awaited orders, in the silence disturbed only by the occasional creak from the rigging. Walt and Dabby wisely gave Adramin room to pace, watching him glance up at the sails, then at the wind on the waves behind them, then ahead to gauge the distance to the shore, and then at the boats. Eventually he strode to the wheelhouse. Starboard, he ordered the helmsman. Then, as Cygnus began to turn, leading longboat hauled towards Lucive, sternboat prepared to check our way. He spoke quietly to Mirak, who repeated the order that the longboats had been expecting. Betel, stand by with fenders and lines to shore. Slowly, Cygnus swung around in a wide arc. The jib flapped, swung to port, and filled. Ease the jib! Abdomen shouted, no longer able to wait for his orders to be relayed. Let her come round. Wait for it. Wheel amidships. Harden in that jib. Steady with the main. Mirac, stern boat, check our way. Have them put their backs in it. Bow boat, stand clear. Now then, back the main and jib. Slowly, inexorably, Cygnus slid closer and closer to elusive, her sails taken aback. Walt and Dabby looked at the dismasted hulk, searching for sailors to receive the lines that would bring the two ships safely together. For a few moments it seemed to them that Elusive would carry on past her destination despite the frenzied efforts of the stern longboat to slow her down. "'Luff!' Adramin shouted, and a moment later, "'Lines ashore!' Four ropes arced through the air, grappling hooks falling in the series of metal-on-wood thuds, one of them where Mufrid had stood to watch Cygnus approach. The hooks slid across the deck, caught on the rail, and went bar-taut as teams of men hauled until their shoulders cracked. At first the forward momentum of the ship seemed to be winning, and sailors were pulled across Cygnus' deck, despite their having taken a turn of the ropes around the strong points. Then, as more men added their weight, they slowly gained a step, then another, and then another. At last the two ships rubbed together, their hulls protected by the oversized pad of old rope and canvas that Adramin had ordered for the occasion. "'Nice work, Dramin. That was neat as neat can be.' Adramin heard the approval, but ignored it as he reverted to his usual practice of marching up and down the deck, instructing men in what they were already doing. "'See you real soon,' said Walt to Dabby. I'm going to check up on me pub and fetch me little pile of goodies what I want to trade with on our next trip. He vaulted onto the rail and then poised himself above the double arm's length gap between the two ships. He launched his stolid body outward, grabbed Elusive's rail in both huge hands, and hauled himself up and over. In moments his rolling gait took him across the deck, over the other side, onto the wharf, and on towards the black sheep. He turned and raised one arm in a wave to Dabby before going through the inn door and out of sight. "'Where's Walt?' Adramin demanded from the waist of the ship, where he stood surrounded by men adjusting the mooring lines. When Mirak pointed towards the inn, Adramin shrugged. He looked up and down the wharf, where fishermen were unloading the morning's catch, bargaining with men and women carrying baskets and sacks, and saw a short, heavy-set figure at the inn door. The lubber's gone for beer, he said. 
take over, Mirak. I'll be assessing the situation aboard Elusive. Adraman's arrival on Elusive was more decorous and commander-like than Walt's precipitous jump. Holding himself slightly more erect than usual, Adramin walked across the gangway that his crew had just set between the two ships, and paused on the deck of the Elusive, expecting the thud of heels to greet him aboard. The ship was silent, and seemingly deserted of the crew that should have been on deck to receive the mooring lines from Cygnus. No smoke trickled out of the galley stovepipe. No sailors worked to complete the repairs that Adramin saw were in process. Spars lay along the deck, ready to be hauled aloft when new masts had been stepped. Most of the gashes along the rail and coachwork had been repaired, but while others were still at the stage when crushed and splintered wood was being cut away, it seemed strange to him that men who had rescued the ship from a reef and then done so much to clear up and repair should suddenly have downed tools. Adramin frowned as he walked towards the stern. Someone had left a hammer and chisel beside a half-finished job of scarfing in repairs to a broken section of the stern rail. When he peered down the steps of the companionway, he could see the dim glow from one of the lights that illuminated the tween-decks day and night. He descended cautiously, his soft boots silent on the treads, and turned aft towards the master's cabin. The door stood ajar, so he pushed it open gently and stepped in. Coming from the dark passageway, he did not at first recognize Mufred, who was bending over a sheaf of papers spread out on the table, silhouetted against the stern scuttles. He neither saw nor heard the two men who had been standing on either side of the door until they had seized both his arms and wrenched them towards his neck. He tried to bend forward to ease the pain, but a knee in the small of his back kept him agonizingly upright. They forced him to sit, clamped his wrists onto the arms of the chair, and tied them there so tightly that the cords cut into his skin. Fingers dug into his hair and yanked his head back, forcing him to look at the silhouette of a man outlined against the stern lights. Adramin stared uncomprehendingly, slitting his eyes to see into the shadow. "'Elusive,' he murmured. "'The same. Not drowned, not dead, not lost.' but very, very unhappy with the mutinous, traitorous, double-dealing thief who stole my navigator and most of my crew. Mufrid took time to choose each word and then pronounced it slowly, relishing its accuracy as he advanced across the cabin. Adramin tried to stare him down, but when Mufrid was only a pace away, Adramin's eyes dropped, and with them any hope of talking his way out of the situation. For a moment he wondered whether, if he shouted, men from Cygnus would rescue him. As if guessing his thought, Mufrid's index figures suddenly drilled into both of his cheeks, forcing his jaw open. He only had time for one word. "'Father!' he began, and heard the cringing despair in his own voice as one of Mufrid's men stuffed a wad of cloth into his mouth. Mufrid waved a hand, and Adramin heard bare feet on the cabin sole, followed by the sound of the door closing. "'Don't call me father. A true son is loyal. He respects his father. He does not steal from him. A true son should not need to be told of his duty. But then you're not a true son. 
You are no son of mine. Adramin tried to speak, but managed only something between a grunt and a moan. You don't understand, do you? Let me explain. You are not my son. You never were. When you were still a baby, I picked you from some lubber woman's brood in some insignificant little port to which I never returned. You had black hair, a straight nose, and looked as if you would grow up lean and tall. I got the resemblance right, but nothing more. Oron must have known. He gave a clasp to Dabby, because he's clearly family. But all you got was a ring like the ones he gave to useful idiots like Mirac and Bethel. And you never guessed, did you? You thought the old man was punishing me through you, keeping you down despite your ability, you must have thought, as you bided your time and looked for your chance to steal my ship. Mufrid screamed the last three words, bending forward so that spittle flew into Adramin's wide-eyed face. Mufrid stood, and when Adramin's head remained bowed, he slapped him under the chin. Look at me, you insignificant excrement, you filthy mistake! I am going to make you wish you never had been born! Mufrid took a firm hold on Adramin's ring finger and bent it backwards until it snapped. Drawing his knife, he ran the blade around the second joint. The gag turned Adramin's scream into a moan, as Mufrid slid Adramin's ring over the blood-slippery stump. "'Shall I feed you your ring, or your finger?' Mufrid asked conversationally. "'I think the finger.' He put the ring in his pocket, grabbed the end of Adramin's gag, and yanked it out, bringing one front tooth with it. Then he stooped, picked up the severed finger, held it dripping blood in front of Adramin's eyes, then shrugged, then tossed it out the stern scuttle. He thrust the cloth back into Adramin's blood-smeared mouth and stepped back like a craftsman assessing his work. He looked thoughtfully at the blood pulsing out of the maimed hand. Ignoring Adramin's moans, Mufrid loosed the cord around the chair arm and tied it again around the finger stump. If you hold your hand above your head, the bleeding will slow and may even stop. Maybe I'll be back soon to continue our conversation. Or maybe I won't. Maybe I'll just sail off in Cygnus and leave you here. Maybe you'll get tired and you'll let your hand fall. If so, most likely you'll bleed to death. But maybe you won't. Life is full of these imponderables. Mufrid's knife slit the fastenings of Adramin's jacket and pulled it open. Adramin cringed. Mufrid's lips rose at the corners into a parody of a smile. He wiped his knife and hands on Adramin's shirt and left the cabin. Adramin heard the lock click behind him. He thought of shouting for help, decided that no one would hear him, and shouted anyway, even though he could barely hear the strangled sounds he made into the gag. Eventually he fell silence, and lapsed into near unconsciousness for a time he could not even guess. His maimed hand slid off the arm of the chair, and blood dripped onto the cabin sole, but he did not hear it. An indeterminate time later he became lucidly awake and curiously free of pain. He heard the sounds of Cygnus being prepared for departure. Footfalls on the deck above the cabin told him that the grapples were being unhooked. He tried to shout, but could only manage a muffled croak. Then, 
Just as he was sinking towards despair, he heard footsteps on the companionway. The key grated, the door opened behind him. Please, Mufred, he began, unaware that he was not making a sound. Then he saw who it was. His one word, Mirak, came out as a grunt. Sorry, Dramin, I'm in a rush. Orders are orders. The master wants these papers. We're leaving. You're out of luck. Goodbye, Dramin. You were useful for a while. Astrea's sketches under his arm, Mirak strode out of the cabin. Adramin heard the door slam and the key turn in the lock. He slumped forward in despair. Walt was through the door of the black sheep and standing on the broad stone step into the tap-room before he noticed that he should not have been able to lift the latch so early in the day, much less find the room unlit, unswept, untidy, and uninhabited. He took a breath to speak and changed his mind. Modifying his usual thumping gait to an almost silent shuffle, he crossed the room and pushed the kitchen door open just wide enough for him to peek in. A smoking lantern threw a dim pool of light on a table littered with mugs, dirty dishes, and scraps of food. A small black shape with glittering eyes regarded him insolently. Bugger, muttered Walt, reaching for his knife. The rat jumped off the table and disappeared into a gloomy corner. Walt pushed the door wide and strode into the kitchen, sniffing a disagreeable mixture of stale beer, rotting food, and a smouldering fireplace. Thinking how disgusted Lindy would have been to see what had become of her kitchen, Walt angrily circled the room. After he had added to the stench by kicking over a slop bucket, he slowed down and asked himself how the inn had fallen to such a state in only a few days. He rapped on the circular end of a beer barrel, producing a hollow note. Five more thumps on the remaining half-dozen barrels produced the same empty sound. "'Bugger!' said Walt, with increasing venom. "'Me own pub, with no beer to sell!' He released the catch under the table and shoved it back to expose the start of the secret passage. Halfway down the steps, into the dark, he heard feet and voices entering by the front door. He jumped the last four treads, grabbing the rope as he went. The table rumbled back into place, just as the kitchen door swung open. Standing in pitch darkness, Walt heard at least three pairs of feet walk around the table, followed by a thump as someone slipped on the contents of the slop bucket. A fervent oath was followed by grunts of laughter from an easily amused audience of at least two. "'That's enough!' Walt heard the voice of the Mayor of Charton, a man used to having his own way. His orders were clearly audible through the kitchen floor. "'There's no excuse for this godforsaken mess. Clean it up!' The answer was inaudible. I don't care. Get on with it. Now. And you, Brad, why aren't you ready to open for business? Again there was a mumbled reply. No beer? What do you mean there's no beer? Standing alone in the darkness below, Walt shook his head, surprised that nobody had found his well-stocked cellar, and incredulous that the mayor had put the town drunk in charge of the inn. "'Well, find it, you oaf! There has to be more than these six barrels. Search the inn! Look in the sheds! I'll be back at noon, and I want this place set to rights and functioning properly!' Walt heard a single pair of angry heels stamp out of the kitchen, 
followed by indistinct voices competing to assign blame, make excuses, and declare unwillingness to take responsibility. After this process had ground down to exclamations such as, Not my job! Well, then! And, No, you! The muttering receded into the taproom and out the kitchen door. Walt pondered the situation in the dark. He could wait until the Lackwit staff returned and compel them to work on his terms, but that was not why he had come ashore. He found a candle by feel, lit it, and opened the door which led into the beer cellar, which the new operators had not been able to find. He put his candle on the floor, where it illuminated the round ends of a head-high stack of barrels that concealed the door he had just opened from anyone who might be in the beer cellar. His big hands and massive shoulders made light work of removing three empty barrels from the top row and two full ones below them at knee height. Then he carefully eased the bottom barrel a half-turn and opened a concealed door in its side, through which he removed six fist-sized leather bags which he distributed in his capacious pockets. Then he carefully replaced the barrels and retreated into the cave-like space under the table. He had blown out his candle and was about to climb up the stairs when he heard footsteps and then voices. Hey, Brad, I found where Walt keeps his beer. As he heard the unmistakable sounds of the other unconcealed trapdoor being opened and then dropped flat, Walt let out a quiet sigh of relief that he was no longer inside the beer cellar, and started down the secret passage, feeling his way in the dark. When he emerged onto the dock, he frowned in puzzlement. Cygnus was unloading stores and equipment into Elusive, which he expected, but instead of furling sails and rigging extra lines to shore, some of her crew appeared to be preparing for sea. "'What's that bastard dramming up to now?' Walt muttered. Swiftly deciding that he needed to know more before taking action, Walt chose a circuitous route back into the huddle of sheds and shacks at the water's edge. He took the alley around the back of the inn and its outhouses, and peered around the west wall of the inn where he could have lobbed a stone across the main wharf onto the sterns of the two ships as they lay side by side. Not for the first time he took advantage of his short, squat frame to remain unnoticed by the men and women at work aboard the two ships. He shrank back into the alley mouth as a party of six men came towards him, rolling barrels towards the town pump, a short distance up the road that led northward toward the hills. "'Bloody Mufred!' one of them complained as he rumbled his barrel past the alley. "'Why couldn't the bastard stay dead?' "'Stow it!' ordered another. "'You ain't seen what he does to them who thinks he's malingering.' Walt's eyes narrowed as he considered what he'd heard. He lurked in the shadows, watching the road. When they returned, the sailors were having a difficult time keeping their barrels moving on the rough road, now that they were heavy with water. Deflected by a rut, one of them rolled towards Walt's alley. He redirected it back on track with a well-placed kick, and then joined the men, guiding another barrel away from running into two more. All were too busy to notice that there was one more person helping them, particularly since the watering party was made up of men from both ships, and all were bent over to kick and shove at the barrels. When they reached the edge of the wharf, where the barrels were being hoisted aboard elusive and transferred to Cygnus, they did not notice Walt sidle aboard, cross the quarter-deck, 
and down the stern companionway. Walt had no real plan beyond an angry need to shout at Adramin or anyone else who got in his way. He paused on the last step, hearing an unmistakable groan from the stern cabin. The door was locked, which only increased his curiosity. A moment's work with his clasp-knife was rewarded with a splintering click, and the door swung open, revealing the back of Adraman's head. Walt did not hesitate. In a few economical moves he closed the door and jammed it with a chair, cut Adraman's bonds, and began easing the gag out of his mouth. "'Quietly, Dramin, quietly,' he murmured as he examined the mutilated hand. "'Mofred's work?' Adraman could only nod. "'Nasty. Now you just stay where you are till I clean you up.' Some time later, as the evening dimmed towards night, Adramin and Walt sat beside an open scuttle, drinking some of Mufrid's private store of whisky, gratefully breathing sea-scented air, and listening to the many sounds of Cygnus hoisting sail, loosing lines to shore, and deploying the longboats to ease her onto a course between the headlands. Adramin shifted in his chair to settle his hand, now bandaged with strips of Mufrid's best shirt, and stared into Walt's eyes. "'Thank you.' "'Do the same for any of me, brothers.' "'I'm not. He told me, just before he—' He waved the bandaged hand and winced. He, he found me, picked me out because I looked like the family. Stole me, stole me from some woman he never knew. "'Well, ain't that a kick in the slats for you?' "'We're shipmates, then?' "'Of what ship?' "'He's got Cygnus.' and nobody's going anywhere on elusive for a long while. "'You want to get her back?' Adramin shrugged and winced as he inadvertently moved his maimed hand again. "'Well, then, how's about a bit of getting even?' "'How?' First off, we figure out where he's going in such a tearing rush, and then we make it, um, um, unpleasant for him.' Anything I can do with one hand, I will. First, we got to find him, and I'm betting he's looking for Estrella. Estrella's dead. You're probably the only person who thinks so. He's back aboard the fishboat from the north. Following the landfall pictures, he drew on his way south. I saw you six him. I told you. You told me to drop him in the salt chuck. I did that. I didn't even ask you why, cause I guessed you was taking advice from Mirak. But I wasn't about to kill off the only one who starts up stones, especially when we're kin. And I couldn't believe you really wanted him dead when he was your cousin, or at least you thought he was. So the lad made it to his pals on the fishboat, the one he did his drawings from. I'm glad, feeling better. Adramin nodded, grateful that Walt had not asked him about how Mirak had gained power over him. "'The drawings,' he said slowly, making connections. "'Mufrid has them aboard Cygnus. I got a glimpse before he—he he had them out on his table. He left without them. But then he sent Mirak for them.' "'Mirak left you like this?' He just said, "'Orders is orders,' and left. "'Well, I'll be jiggered.' That man is a seriously treacherous bastard. He deceived Estrella, 
got me to help him, then he deceived me, and now he's gone over to Mufred. Then what we need is for you and me to get away with one of Elusive's boats. We'll lose him. We can't follow close, or he'll see us. And he's got my ring. Walt held up his little finger, where his green stone gleamed softly. Mine's working just fine, pointing at Cygnus, just like it should. Let's you and me find ourselves a longboat. And we luck, we'll put a spoke in Mufred's wheel. Grab one of his jackets, keep yourself warm. We're going sailing. You have been listening to the Estrella Trilogy, written and read by Seymour Hamilton. All three books are available in electronic and paper formats from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and Chapters. Visit astreatrilogy.com for more about Astrea's world. This audio version is licensed under the United States Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0.